All right, welcome to the first episode of the African Five Aside podcast. I can't believe we're finally here. A uh, special thank you to the good folks over at Africa as a country for uh, really making this happen. I've been really touched by that outpouring of support, even though we hadn't even recorded our first episode. This is episode zero of Match Day One. And uh, as mentioned in the intro video, uh, Match Day One of the African Five Aside podcast is going to take a look at African football's most influential politicians. Um, so this is the first lineup we're going to make. We're going to make our own Five Aside team from those politicians. Uh, but before we profile those heads of state, I think it's necessary uh, that we lay a few ground rules and that we name our substitutes. So I have four very brief housekeeping notes before we begin. Uh, number one, please, uh, if you'd like, subscribe across all platforms. Uh, we have a YouTube channel. There's uh, audio platforms wherever you usually get your podcasts. This will be available. We have a Twitter account. We have a Substack. Uh, and currently in the process of setting up a TikTok. I'm not sure uh, how well that's going to work. Uh, point number two, I'm perfectly aware that the audio and the video quality is not where it needs to be. Um, currently in between uh, houses, I don't really have the equipment with me, uh, but you can expect both the audio and video quality to improve drastically uh, in the coming weeks. So just brief apologies uh, about that as well. Number three, profiling a head of state is by no means an endorsement of their policies. Uh, it's very basic knowledge, but I think this has to be said. Uh, some of the people that we'll be discussing have been horrible authoritarians. Some of them uh, were pretty good statesmen. Our focus is more on how and why they accelerated the development of football in their country and on the continent. And finally, final housekeeping note is that no current heads of state uh, or even recent ones will be named because that just carries too much emotional baggage. So uh, leaders like George Weah, uh, the only uh, head of state in the world, that's one a Ballon d'Or is not going to be mentioned. Uh, you could also throw out the likes of Paul Kagame in Rwanda, King Mohammed VI in Morocco. They could have their sporting legacies told, but if they're going to be told, they're going to be told in the future because telling them now is just too emotionally charged. So now that we know the rules of the game, uh, let us name who our substitutes are going to be. And I don't need to tell you the importance of substitutes. These are the fellas that will be giving us that adrenaline boost, that shot of energy as needed, you know, in the 80th minute, in the in the 85th minute as we're trailing 1-0. So we're going to start in chronological order and give a bib to one of the most influential politicians in post-colonial Africa that we unfortunately uh, too often forget, Namdi Azikwe. Namdi Azikwe, also known as Zik, uh, often referred to as the father of Nigerian nationalism, uh, a journalist, a former politician, and most importantly concerning us, a former athlete too, uh, born in 1904 in northern Nigeria, then British West Africa. Um, for those unfamiliar with Nigerian demographics, Nigeria is home to three main ethnicities. You have the House of Folk up north, you have the Yoruba, which is more uh, southwest, and then you have the Igbo southeast. Uh, Zeke is by blood Igbo, but he was born in the north, in Hausa, and he considered himself a Hausa boy growing up, sort of. His father, not too best pleased with that, said, you know what, you're going back to Igbo territory, and he sent him uh, on the banks of the Niger River, um, and that's where he really started to develop a lot of his athletic traits, uh, hunting, fishing, swimming, wrestling, 
Um, and then finally, when he was time to go to high school, he goes to the Wesleyan Boys High School. Uh, that's in Lagos, in Yoruba territory. And that kind of education, now he sort of frequented all three main ethnicities, I think, really made him an ideal candidate to lead Nigeria uh, after independence. So after finishing high school, uh, he remained in Lagos and as a young man joined the Diamond Football Club, uh, with whom he won the league in 1923 as a player and later as a general secretary, ultimately beating the Lagos Athletic Club, uh, which he, in his memoirs, mentions they were a famous European club, which were undefeated before meeting the, the Diamond Football Club, which was more of a, a mixed, uh, predominantly Nigerian team. And you can imagine the symbolism of that and that sort of as a young man getting the imagination going about the power of sport in defeating colonization. Uh, encouraged by his father, he left for the United States in 1925 and he spent about a decade over there. Um, he got his doctorate in anthropology. He went to some of the best uh, universities in the United States, places like Columbia, Howard. Um, and once again, there he displayed his athletic talents in archery, in track and field, boxing, cricket, cross country, uh, field hockey, swimming. And during his stay in the United States, I think Namdi Azikwe, like many non-Americans are when they, when they realize what the American sports media landscape is, he was fascinated by the importance of media and professional sport in the United States. Um, and those links between those two sectors of activity. So uh, very quickly, he, he realized the power of harnessing media and attaching it to sport. And so when he returned to Africa in the mid-1930s, uh, I think he had that on his mind. Now, one of the things that you have to know about Azikwe is that he was a really, really talented athlete. And he did want to represent Nigeria at the Olympic Games. Um, that never happened. He wanted to represent Nigeria at the British Empire Games in 1934. And this was an event that really, really hit him hard. Um, it's The British Empire Games were organized by the, by the Amateur Athletic Associations of Great Britain. Um, and they said that they didn't qualify him in time. They didn't do the paperwork in time. He suspects, and I think a much more credible theory, is that the South African athletes didn't really have a taste for competing uh, against him. And as a result, they used some kind of paperwork technicalities to rule him out. It was then that he sort of dropped his name Benjamin, because when he was in the States, he was going by Ben Azikwe. And that's when he dropped Ben and he continued with Namdi Azikwe, very much embracing uh, his heritage, sort of shirking off uh, any kind of British identity and realizing that the road to emancipation leads to identity. In 1937, he created his press group in Lagos uh, around, uh, it was called the Western African Pilot, and uh, he used his newspapers to sort of deliver subtle messages of a future without British rule. Um, and he ended up building a conglomerate of newspapers and really, again, developing that link between sport and politics. Shortly before the Second World War, Zeke, uh, became strongly persuaded of sports capacity to not only affect political change, but also bring together Nigerians. And again, think back to his education, spending that time in Hausa country, in Igbo country, in Yoruba country. And then he goes to sign up at a tennis club, a Yoruba tennis club, and he's denied access. He's denied membership due to his ethnicity. So this happens in 1937. It's another real event that really hits him hard. And so what he does is he creates his own sporting club. The ZAC, Zeke's Athletic Club, funded by his newspaper group and his member subscriptions. Now, the ZAC becomes a hub of sporting activity, um, social activity. 
You had branches across Nigeria, uh, strong, fielded really strong football teams. Uh, they had a nickname uh, that was the Bombers or the Spitfires, um, and they would attract thousands and thousands of people in the stadiums. Uh, Zeke, at the time, the British authorities were kind of suspicious of him, but he really was a very smart man, and he took advantage of World War II and the fact that he knew that the British authorities wanted a united front in Nigeria to sort of fund and support uh, the Great War efforts. And so what he said was that we were going to do a goodwill tour in 1941 and 1942 with his club, the Zeke's Athletic Club, um, for the purposes of raising funds for the Allied war effort in 1941. The British authorities said, fine, go ahead, and he does it. And what very quickly happened in 41 and 42 is that the football section of the ZAC tours all kinds of Nigerian provinces. And although, yes, they raised money for the metropolis at war, in reality, what they were doing is that they were meeting people, you know, different people that uh, otherwise had no real opportunity to meet one another, Igbos, Yorubas, Hausas. And they're trying to use sport to really shore up those religious divides and those ethnic divides. Uh, at the end of these matches, you know, Zeke could launch into diatribes against British politics. Um, they could talk about reforms for democracy. And so really under the cover of football, what he was doing was advancing the Nigerian cause. And so it's only normal that when the British withdrew in 1960, uh, the keen and talented former amateur football Namdi Azikwe became Nigeria's first president. Why is he on the bench and why is he not a starter? That's a damn good question. But we put Zeke on the bench because he only actually stayed in power for three years. Uh, and then he was deposed by a coup d'etat. And as a result, we can't really include him in our starting lineup. Zeke is kind of the player that, you know, has a lot of talent and ability, kind of like an Ebu Diaby, but his career just wasn't long enough. And as a result, he has the first spot on our bench. Next on our bench is the first president of independent Algeria, Ahmed Ben Billah. Ahmed Ben Billah uh, grew up in western Algeria. Uh, he played in his local city of Marnia in the, in the nowadays the province of Tlemcen. Uh, prior to the Second World War, he was playing as a sort of striker, uh, kind of like a creative midfielder. Positions were different than they were today. Um, and so when the Second World War broke out, Ahmed bin Billah uh, was drafted and he was stationed in Marseille. So he was fighting on the Allied front. In the French military bases, bin Billah was impressing because they, were, they had time to play football. The, the French invasion uh, didn't really begin until later in the war. And so in those early days, he was playing football. And during the war, France was split into five regions. The, the French League was split into five regions. Marseille was put in a southeast division uh, alongside Nice, Cannes, Saint-Étienne, and Antibes. His displays at the military base earned him a call-up to the military national team. And then he played so well with the military national team that he actually got called up to play with a club named Chateau Gombert. He played so well with Chateau Gombert that Olympique de Marseille had actually asked him to come and play a match for them. And this took place on April 21st, 1940. Uh, against Antibes. Marseille would win either 9-0 or 9-1. There are two different accounts. And Ahmed Ben Billah scored the third goal in that route. And so 
it's fascinating to see because I think after George Weah, Ahmed Ben Nabella is the only African president to play professional football, even if it was only for one match. Um, during the war, he was honored with the Croix de Guerre for his outstanding bravery, but immediately after he returned to Algeria, he engaged in the Algerian nationalist struggle. For those that don't know, following World War II, uh, the 8th of May 1945 is known as VE Day in Europe. But in Algeria, there was a huge massacre in Slaif and Kharata and Galma. And as a result of that massacre, uh, that's when people believed there was a deep fracture uh, in, at the time, French Algeria. And as a result, he engaged himself with the Nationalist Revolutionary Front. Uh, he was one of the six leaders of the Algerian Revolution. And although he spent most of the Algerian Revolution in prison after French authorities pulled off uh, one of the first acts of uh, airplane hijacking in, in history, his credibility, credibility remained intact after independence. So behind his stint at Marseille, uh, football played one more big role in Ahmed bin Billah's life. But this time it was during his downfall. The year is 1965. He's been in power for three years. And Algeria, like many African nations, um, what they do is they invite Brazil and, and, and Santos to, to come play friendly matches in Algeria. And this was not just uh, Brazil. Algeria invited a lot of celebrities. I think what a lot of younger nations tended to do was to invite superstars or celebrities to come over. It sort of provides a sense of validation for a new country, um, especially if they align with their political principles. So uh, Benbilla invites... Brazil, uh, Algeria gets invited to play against uh, Pele and Gahincha. Um, they're playing a couple of friendly matches, one in Oran and the second was in Algiers. The first in Oran was to take place on the 17th of June and the next one in Algiers on the 20th of June, 1965. There's a great photo of Pele speaking to Pele and Garincha. Uh, sorry, there's a great photo of Ben Bella speaking to Pele and Garincha. And the first match takes place on June 17th. Algeria loses the match. Binbilla is at the stadium. And sure enough, there's a French journalist that's following him, uh, doing some kind of news report about the entire thing. And so we really get the real final few moments of Binbilla and power caught on French television. And the archival footage is available. For those interested, I can put it in the YouTube description. At the time, in Algiers, Gilo Pontecorvo was also shooting The Battle of Algiers, uh, one of in my opinion, the greatest movies ever shot. <laughs> but you have tanks in the street, you have, you know, uh, actors in military garb and fatigue running across in the street as well. And, and people weren't really shocked by, you know, seeing, you know, military in the street because they thought they were shooting things for the movie. And so on the 19th of June, 1965, one day before the second friendly match that was supposed to take place between Algeria and Brazil, uh, there's a coup d'etat that takes place. Ahmed bin Billah is removed from power. Um, and football played a role in sort of providing as a, distract, as a, as a distraction uh, to remove him from power. Um, and so Ahmed bin Billah, talented, only the second African head of state uh, to play uh, for a professional football team, actually the first, but I think the second most important. He finds a place on the bench next to Namdi Azikwe. Beside Namdi Azikwe and Ahmed bin Billah on the bench is someone who isn't nearly the athlete that they were. Uh, someone who nonetheless had resources to control football. Uh, the Libyan leader, Muhammad al-Gaddafi. 
Now, anyone that knows anything about Gaddafi knows that he never liked football. Gaddafi is like the kid you call up when you don't have enough players. <laughs> You're just looking to make up the numbers, but he has a ball. He has, you know, the key to the cage to open it up so that you can go and play. Or he has a car and he can pick you up and drop you off. And he's just looking for validation, you know. So Gaddafi was born in a very, very modest Bedouin family. His family sacrificed to send him to school. But he showed real intelligence and affability growing up. And his family were encouraged by that. And they moved him to Sebha to continue his education south of Tripoli. Um, there he had access to the radio and uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser's radio program that was you know, broadcast out of Cairo, the voice of the Arabs. And you have no idea how influential Gamal Abdel Nasser and that sort of pan-Arab philosophy was on Gaddafi. It was at the time, all the countries were gaining independence as well across the African continent, and there's a real spirit of pan-Arabism. And, and it was really was a different time. There was a general awakening across the African and the Arab world. And so Gaddafi, with his Free Officers Movement, named after Gamal Abdel Nasser's Free Officers Movement, they carried out a bloodless coup in 1969 as Libyans had enough of their monarchy. He stepped in at the opportune time as King Idris was out of the country and he established the Jamahiriya over the next decade. Jamahiriya, for those that don't know, is like a horizontal socialist society. No political parties. Uh, everything is governed through local popular councils. Um, it's sort of like a, a Gaddafi's version of socialism that is supposed to be purely democratic. And in the 1970s, Gaddafi writes his Green Book in which he elaborates his ideas for Libyan society. Now, giving you this political background just to, to illustrate what Gaddafi really thinks about football. Because in the chapter of his Green Book entitled Sport, Horsemanship, and the Stage, he outlines his disdain for spectator sport. So listen to this, and I quote, The thousands who crowd stadiums to view, applaud, and laugh are foolish people who have failed to carry out the activity themselves. They line up lethargically in the stands of sporting grounds and applaud those heroes who wrest from them the initiative, dominate the field, and control the sport, and in so doing, exploit the facilities that the masses provide. Gaddafi sounds like my mother <laughs> when I talk about how much I love football and she just says, yeah, why don't you go play it? Why are you watching it? You know? Um, stupid game. Uh, and professional sport was banned during the first years of his reign. Uh, it was only reinstated under certain conditions. Um, yeah, around a decade in, we get signs that Gaddafi started to appreciate the power of sport. In 1978, for example, the Ghana Black Stars win the African Cup of Nations. But at the time, Ghana was bankrupt. Um, and what Libya did, what Gaddafi did, was he actually funded... Uh, their training camp. He gave them money to, to com compete in the tournament because he had an affinity for J.J. Rawlings, uh, Ghana's former uh, president. And so you could see that there were signs that he was starting to embrace football. And in 1982, Libya decided to host the Africa Cup of Nations. And this is legendary because nowadays, when you look at major tournaments like the Africa Cup of Nations, uh, you can see, you know, across the advertising boards, you have... Uh, whoever it is, uh, Fly Emirates, uh, Nike, you know, back in the day we had JVC, Toshiba, McDonald's, Adidas. During Gaddafi's African Cup of Nations in 1982, instead of marketing slogans across the advertising boards, you had revolutionary slogans. You had one of them was, uh, we are partners, not employees. 
The other one was Democracy for All. During the opening ceremony, uh, there was a TIFO for his revolution, the Fatah revolution. Uh, there were uh, people holding up signs for the Green Book, his Green Book, his manifesto. And there is this apocryphal anecdote that exists online that Al-Gaddafi goes up and makes a speech and he finishes his speech with, now I leave you with your stupid game. <laughs> Just mind-blowing and absolutely legendary. We don't know if it's true or not, but if it is, wow. Now, despite Libya's successes in 1982 at the AFCON, they make it to the final and lose to their friends Ghana. Um, Gaddafi always viewed football as a tool, not as something to be developed in and of itself, but uh, something with which to you know, uh, influence the masses. Um, there are stories like Libyan broadcasters on the radio claiming that they couldn't mention the names of players. Instead of saying, you know, Harry Kane passes, they would say number nine passes, just because Gaddafi didn't want the cult of personality, uh, which is a bit rich coming from him. There were uh, other times where he made the Libyan national team forfeit matches because of political differences with the opposition. Um, and sure enough, fate has a twisted sense of humor. But God gives him a son that absolutely loves football, Sa'di al-Gaddafi. And we won't go far into Sa'di al-Gaddafi's story because that's another story for another time. But there's a really interesting quote where he says that his father doesn't understand what football can do for young people and the sort of hopes and aspirations and the breath of fresh air that it can provide for them. Uh, Sa'di al-Gaddafi goes on to play in Serie A in Italy, plays with the Libyan national team, um, Etihad Tripoli, and is actually a decent footballer, but there are some absolutely crazy anecdotes about him and his time in football. So that's who we have on our bench. We have Namdi Azikwe, we have Ahmed Bin Billa, we have Sa'di Gaddafi, uh, an, an eclectic group of fellows for sure. Uh, next week, we will get into the starters of our five-a-side team, the goalkeeper. I'll give you a hint. He's tall, he's handsome, he smokes like a chimney, and he had an absolutely essential role in establishing structure for African football. If you have any guesses, you can leave it in the comments. Uh, until then, thank you for listening. Uh, again, really touched by the outpouring of support for this podcast. Um, you can subscribe across audio platforms on YouTube. Check out Africa as a Country, uh, some of the best intellectual analysis about uh, affairs on the African continent. Uh, and until next time, we'll see you then. Peace. على قوالي لا صرالك ما صرالي